Uh, if you go to the Welcome Center here, we've got a number of pamphlets, church policies, papers on the wall there. That may sound boring or look boring, but if somebody comes into the church and they want to know where do you stand on something, we're not making policies up, but trying to articulate what does Scripture say and what do, what do we understand Scripture means by those things. You know, marriage, this key, key element right from creation on, has this huge power to bless or to curse. And it was always meant to be this, this lifetime union between a man and a woman. But of course, we're sinful. And after the fall, marriage, which has this great ability to bless, can also be otherwise, has the ability to, to bring pain, hardships, etc. into our lives. Because of that, divorce has always been an issue. You go back to the law of Moses and God made provision for divorce at Mount Sinai. It was a topic in Jesus' own day, and Jesus comes and He addresses that. Two schools of thought prevalent in the day. One was sort of no-fault divorce. A man, not a woman, a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Uh, or another school said, no, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. You can't do that. So Jesus came up and on one hand He said, no, you can't divorce for any reason at all. But then He made provision in Matthew 5 that if there was... The Greek term is porneia. If there was sexual immorality, if there was something that was so devastating in the marriage, you had the permission to divorce. You weren't required to, but you could. Marriage was also meant to be this great blessing, but what you find out in practical effects, especially as you interact with others, is that for many of us, we see less of God's blessing in marriage than the difficulties. And it's always, of course, sin that makes that kind of impact. We're in the 38th message in the Heroes and Villains series this morning. And again, I just want to be careful on the front end that as we talk about this, and this is particularly true in the lesson this morning, that we're saying heroes displayed elements of the faithfulness of Christ and that as Christians, Christ's life is in us. And so what we're looking at is what is the faithfulness of Jesus look like in me and those old testament or new testament saints they become lenses whereby we see what does christ-like faithfulness look like we're not creating another law that we're trying to live up to we're not creating another moral standard which just means we fail we're really saying what does christ's life in me look like what does that faithfulness in me look like these are images of that faithlessness was people simply turning away from God and God's things and saying, I'll do it my way. So in that context, we're looking at the life of Hosea this morning. The book is 14 chapters long. His name means salvation, as salvation is part of the name of many of the prophets. And, you know, though his book is pretty well known, it's the first of the minor prophets, along with Zechariah, it's the longest, it's 14 chapters Long, those minor prophets in the back of your Old Testament, it's a place most of us rarely get. They're called minor prophets because their works are shorter typically than something like Isaiah. His story, Hosea becomes this living analogy of God's relationship with His covenant people, Israel. And he communicates in Old and New Testament the relationship he has with his people as something like a marriage. That, that it's meant to have this singular importance in our life. And so Hosea's life and his marriage is going to be a lens 
or an analogy between God's relationship with His covenant people, Israel. You know, if you look back in Isaiah's day, God commanded that Isaiah walk naked and barefoot because Isaiah would look like the captives of Israel who would be taken captive naked and barefoot. That was the way that armies shamed their, the people that they had conquered. And you get to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel looks like, in, by God's requirement in his life, God says, lay on one side, then later he says, lay on another side. And it would, would have looked to people like a boy playing with his toy soldiers because he told Ezekiel, take a brick and you're going to set that on the ground. You're going to lay next to it, and you will, as it were, use sticks or clay or whatever, just like we would use toy soldiers, little boys growing up, and you're assaulting the brick, and the brick is Jerusalem. So Ezekiel had this same element where his life took on this analogy of what God was going to do. And that's what you see with Hosea. And also, just like Isaiah, when Isaiah had children, God said, this is what you're to name your children, because the children represented some element of what was going on between God and Israel. Same thing with Hosea. He's going to have three children, And God says, and I'm naming the children because your children represent some element of my relationship with Israel. Uh, Hosea operates primarily in the northern kingdom. And he's a contemporary with Isaiah. So if you look at the beginning of these books, you see the same kings are mentioned. His marriage to a faithless woman named Gomer is that analogy and One of the things you see when you read the Bible, uh, God's not easily embarrassed. God's not embarrassed at all. He he uses the word whore and whoredom, which sounds even odd saying for me in public, whore and whoredom. He uses 17 times in this little book. The only other book in in the Old Testament that has anything like this is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel uses it 14 times and it's the same analogy in which God is castigating His covenant people. And He says in this marriage-like relationship I'm supposed to be in with you, you are like an unfaithful spouse. And so Hosea is going to live this out. That's what God's call on his life is. Hosea is going to live out this relationship. Hosea pictures God. Gomer, his wife, is going to picture Israel. The unfaithfulness that he'll experience in marriage is the unfaithfulness that God has experienced with His covenant people, Israel. One of the things that struck me about this, I'll mention now so I don't forget later, is that, um, <clears throat> you guys ever said to yourself, let, let's say I sin specifically on a, on a day, or maybe I have a, an area of my life that's a sin, uh, you know, that I struggle with, that's not been put away, I haven't dealt with it yet. And I say to myself in my mind, that it's not a big deal to God, I sort of rationalize or minimize, because after all, He's God. And my sin, you can't hurt God, you can't impact God. He's God and He knows, and it's not really that big a deal. But what you see in a book like Hosea is in fact the exact opposite. So, you know, sometimes we say of ourselves or others, they're emotional in a way that we really mean they're emotionally controlled. They're not thinking, they're just responding out of their emotions. But in a different way, because we're created in God's image, God is emotional. And and in fact, look through the Scriptures, He gets angry, He gets sad. 
So God is emotional about your sin and mine. He's emotional in the language of a spouse. So it's not a little deal that we sin or that we choose to keep on sinning. God experiences our faithlessness perfectly, fully in His emotions. He's not controlled by His emotions like we would be, but we want to make sure that we're not minimizing our impact on God by saying, well, after all, He's God. You can't hurt God. You can't change God. But what can happen and what does happen when we choose faithlessness, God experiences that emotionally perfectly and fully in ways you and I can't appreciate and simply can't know because we're not God. So we want to make sure that when we're contemplating sin in our own lives, we're not writing that off as if this isn't a big deal to God. It's bigger to God than we know or can imagine. The two lessons, and I don't have an overhead for this, two lessons I want to make sure that we get out of this this morning are first, we're called to faithfulness whether we like what God's calling us to or not. We're called to faithfulness. Remember we said under Isaiah, to be faithful is success. And sometimes you'll see that God's calling you to faithfulness in some arena of your life that you don't want. And it might be in a moment or it might be for a long time. And, and we're called to faithfulness whether we like it or not. We'll see that in Hosea. And the second thing is this. Faithfulness for us requires us to forgive others, even those who've proven as faithless to us as God's people did to Him. We'll talk about this. This is the second main point. But I want to make sure there's some nuances we won't have time to cover this morning. You might say, well, what does is, what is forgiveness there look like in this situation? Or what does reconciliation look like? Or you might say, because God's ultimately going to reconcile with His people, and Gomer is going to be reconciled to her husband Hosea. But you might say, Mike, there are areas in which reconciliation is not possible. I'd say absolutely. But we're called for sure to forgive. We'll look at that as the second main point. And sometimes we're called to reconciliation as far as it depends on us. So those are the two main key points. And you can see where Hosea there lies in the timeline up above. So we're going to be in Hosea chapter 1, verses 1-8. through eight. And guys, if you read this, one of the reasons people uh, askew, avoid the prophets, major or minor, is for some of the elements that we'll read in this. You read a passage and you say, I don't know who it's talking about. I don't know when it's talking about. I don't know what's being talked about. There's historic elements in here. We're not trying to get all the historic details out this morning. We're just going to pick up the two main points. So Hosea 1, 1-8, through 8, the Word of the Lord, Yahweh, that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, same as in Isaiah's day, also Micah's and Amos's, by the way, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife, not just any wife, a wife of whoredom. Have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And guys, we'll just say, 
Yehu's the guy God commanded go wipe out Ahab's line. He does that and he does it in Jezreel. The implications about why is God judging him, not entirely clear. We're not concerned with that. We're just going through to get the main points. By the way, Jezreel means God will sow. And if you guys look up commentators, some will sow. Some will say it means God's casting aside. God's casting aside Israel. But the term just means He's sowing. So maybe it means God's saying to Israel, you're like the seed and I'm casting you aside in judgment. Or maybe it just means He's sowing them elsewhere. Not entirely clear. Verse 6, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or sword, war or horses or horsemen. And again, just briefly, if our eyes aren't glazing over on the historic elements, so Israel 722, while Hosea is still around, Israel goes into captivity by Assyria. Judah does not. They survive for another hundred years. And there's an incident in King Hezekiah's lifetime when they're surrounded by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and God just shoes them away. There's no warfare. Israel doesn't, Judah doesn't fight a battle. God just gets rid of them, just as this said he would. Verse 8, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, commentators differ on this because the text itself is not absolutely clear. But there's a possible inference that the second two children are not physically Hosea's. It doesn't say Hosea fathered them like it does Jezreel. And because of the language here, God says to Israel, you're not my children. It's possible that the daughter and the son, second and third children, were not in fact from Hosea, but that she's already promiscuous and that these children in fact belong to another man or to other men. So, so God tells Hosea, this is my plan for your life. Now most of us have hopes and expectations in life. And for most of us growing up, they center around marriage and family at least. Probably career and some other things. So, you know, we're growing up and I'm going to marry a beautiful woman. And you're going to marry a handsome man. And your children will all be above average. And the boys will look handsome like dad. And the girls will look lovely like mom. And your life might have some minor upheavals, but it's going to be good. Life's going to be good. Your marriage is going to be great. Your kids are going to be great. Ain't life grand. And Hosea would have had expectations too. So remember in Israel, not like the states today, everything was about marriage and children. So you live in your tribal area, in the extended tribe of Israel, under God, everything's about family and family relationships. And no doubt, Hosea had grown up with expectations about a loving wife and raising kids. That would have been the normal expectation of anybody that grew up a Jew. And God comes along and says to Hosea, I've got a different plan for your life. And you're not going to have the kind of spouse and marriage you always assumed you would. I've got a different plan and it's nothing that you would have chosen. So 
Hosea almost certainly had those same high expectations. And God says, and this is what you're going to do anyway, marry a woman who proves unfaithful. Have children and raise them. And have children, you don't even know if her children are in fact your children. You're going to suffer the pangs and heartaches of loving a woman who trades you for one lover after another. You're, going to, you're personally going to experience the same pains, God says, same kind of pains at least, that I do with my people Israel. Your marriage is that living illustration of the way I'm treated by Israel. Now, this is interesting. God's call to Hosea is outside the box. It's nothing he would have expected, I'm sure. But the only thing the Scripture records, which he apparently wrote, was that he did it. Which is interesting. You know, when you read Genesis 22 and Abraham has that son, the son of his love, he's waited 25 years for just to get. And now he's raised up, he's a young man. And God says to Abraham, "Uh, take the son, the son of your love, that one you've been waiting for, and now you go sacrifice him up on these mountains. I'll show you where. And you know, in the text, all it says is Abraham got up, took his son, took the servants, and off they went. Well, you see that same thing here in Hosea. There's no argument. There's no recrimination to God. Do you know what you're doing? Are you sure about this? Let's talk about this. Maybe I've got a better idea on this. You want to accomplish something? Let's work on this. There's none of that. All you've got is Hosea saying, I'll do it. So, go marry a woman that's going to forsake you. And he gets up and he does it. Go love a woman who won't love you. And he gets up and that's what he does. Now, let me ask you, in our mind, because I think this is the way we think. Is it okay that God required such a thing of Hosea? Is it okay for God to say, go love a woman who's not going to love you? Go enter into a marriage that is going to be broken. And you know it going in. Is that okay for God to say, to require, to do? Is it alright if God upends His desires? Is it okay if God requires in your life and mine pain or frustration or heartache or hurt or rejection, you name it, whatever pain, whatever disappointment looks like, is it okay if God causes that as He did in Hosea's life or allows that in your life and mine? Is that okay? Because that's Hosea's call. My, my will, Hosea, for your life, don't you love this by the way? You know, back in the day when I was at college and the gospel was being shared, and I say this, this, this was the thing. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now imagine someone comes up to Hosea and they say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then this is what they tell him. This is God's plan for your life. You'd be like, I don't think so. Is this okay? Because I think we have trouble with this today. Because in so many ways, life is so good and so easy for us in the time and the place we live that suffering is a hard sell. And it's a hard sell to Christians. Disappointment. Emotional baggage of one sort or another. It's a hard sell to Christians. Is it okay if God does that in your life and mine? And to those questions we say, well, yes, 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 and yes. And, And why do we say that? And we say, well, because He's God. And we're not. He's God and we're not. He's Creator. We're created. 
You know, you go back, if you're little girls and you have dolls and you play with them growing up, do your dolls tell you what to do? They don't tell you what to do. Because you're the person and they're the doll. And your dolls do what you tell them. Now, they're inanimate, obviously. But there's, there's no confusion there, right? I'm the one in charge. And guys, God is the one in charge. And He makes no bones about this. There's three references on your study sheet. God often compares Himself and us to a potter and a lump of clay. And you remember, you and I are made of the stuff of this earth, like clay. We're dirt. We're, we're compounds and molecules that you can get out of the soil. And God says, I pick you up like a piece of clay, I put you on the potter's wheel, and I form whatever I want. And in fact, it says there's this question that's raised, will the thing made say to the potter, what are you making? It's like it's a ridiculous question. Of course not. Because the potter has a right over the clay. The potter is the one forming it. God's forming your life and mine. He doesn't have to ask you for permission to introduce challenges into your life or pain or frustration or unhappiness in one way or another. Because He's God. And we're not. That's the beginning and the end of that. He makes no apology for this. So it is okay if He does that. Now let me ask you this. If God chooses to introduce into your life or mine that kind of heartache, so put yourself in Hosea's position, you know, things that have the the most power to bless also have the most power to curse. If you're in a great marriage, you know, you feel like life is grand. I love my spouse. My spouse loves me. You know, whatever the heartaches or challenges of life are, it's good. You've got this support, isn't it? But it can be the other way around. And marriages can not only really, really bless, but they can really, really prove difficult, challenging, and just heartbreaking. That can go either way. If God puts some kind of heartache or suffering in my life or yours, is it an indication that He doesn't love me or He doesn't love me as much as He loves someone else who doesn't have that heartache, that pain, that disappointment can we measure in other words how much god loves us by our lifestyle by the status of our marriage now there's some implications here we can't get into but is the degree of blessing we experience on earth is that the measure of god's love for us and to those questions we have to say no it's not no it's not and the prime example of that would be the treatment God the Father sends His Son Jesus to earth to endure. Now, if you look at Jesus' life on the earth, we would, and, and we base blessing or love, God's love, on lifestyle, we would say the Father didn't love the Son because He just sent Him to the earth to be abused. But if we step back and we say, well, why did God the Father choose to send Jesus the Son It's not because He doesn't love Him, it's because He does. And the Father says, I love My Son so much that I want to elevate Him as high as possible. I want to make Him the object of praise in all the ways I can. And so, I give Him this great adventure, challenging, you know, 33 years or so on the dusty planet He made, rejected by the people He came to save, Just like Hosea and Gomer, Jesus comes to His own creation, to Israel. They say, no thanks, you're not the one. Suffers on the cross. 
and dies for our sins. Now, that's not because the Father didn't love Him. It's because the Father did love Him. And because after that death in heaven, in the eternal ages to come, Jesus is exalted by all those who've been redeemed through all history. God the Father loves Him and is heaping honor and praise on Him. So what you'll often find is, and and in fact the prophets are proof of this, you look at the lives of the prophets, they are often, more often than not, their lives were terribly hard. And God loved them. And they were God's special messengers. So if you see hardship or pain or disappointments in your life, don't assume that somehow something's wrong with the universe and God's, God's failed on a promise or you've done something wrong. Do you not find this oftentimes that I say something bad comes up and I'm scrambling mentally saying, okay, Lord, what did I do wrong? Uh, This must be punishment. I must be out of it somehow because you wouldn't otherwise do this. Uh, My truck was was run into right outside the church Friday. And the the neighbor comes up to to tell me, do you you know who owns that truck? You know, that's not a good question. You don't want to hear that. (laughs) Because, yeah, I do. And that's my truck. Excuse me. So I go up to the truck and and I've got to interact with a neighbor, right? I'm a Christian. I don't I don't know where he's at. So I just guys, I love my truck. I'll just tell you. I I, <laughs> I love my truck. You know, I got my first smartphone, and I kept telling Kathy, you, have I told you how much I love this phone? You know, it's got all this and I did the same thing with my truck. Have I told you how much I love my truck? I love my truck. I love my truck. And a guy just <laughs> backed into my truck. So it's like, okay, Lord, okay. And he, he's very apologetic, by the way. I mean, sincerely apologetic. He came looking for me. He was asking all the bricklayers, do you know who owns that truck? Had to come find me. And I just said, you know, it's a truck. It's a truck. No, it, we're, we're fine. We're good. I'm dying, Pat. Inside, I'm crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I ask myself, Lord... Was my truck an idol? <laughs> are you, are you, you? Now, I lend my truck out. I treat it like a truck, so it doesn't become an idol. But maybe I missed the mark, and so I'm asking myself, "Okay, Lord, this thing just happened. Pang, Mike's pang. D- is it an idol? You're taking away my idol. Is there something? I, are you trying to get my attention? Because that's just where my mind goes. It may have nothing to do with anything like that." God may just say, Mike, I'm going to allow a little pain. This is minor, right? It's a truck at the end of the day. It's going to rust. But maybe He just wants me to share just a little pain, a little angst, because He wants to get my attention. For whatever reason. It's not a curse. The pain, the the disappointment, the heartache is not necessarily because we've done anything wrong. Though sometimes it is for that reason, of course. But it doesn't have to be. And so we want to make sure that with Hosea, we understand God's free to ask us anything. And He's free to challenge our lives by intentionally introducing challenging situations that we wouldn't choose. You know, many of you know our daughter Jessica. And when she was growing up, very sharp, very capable gal, great musician, smart, smart person. And you know, she grew up and she started having a few health problems and we're like, well, that's weird. You know, you try and chase one thing down and then another. And, you know, the years go by and she finds out she's got all these degenerative, lifelong diseases, basically, and challenges. And she's not, unless the Lord miraculously heals her, she's not going to get better. This is life as she knows it. 
which is highly compromised. I mean, highly, highly compromised. But you know what's happened is, of course, God's been using it to just help her grow spiritually in crazy good ways. And so life is hard. Was that God's lack of love that Jesse has all these physical challenges? Well, not at all. Can she say to God, Lord, you're ripping me off? Well, she could. But God can't do her wrong, right? God's loving. He's perfect in all His ways and everything He does. He can't abuse us. We're His children. He loves us. Everything He does is funneled through His love for us. And that was true for Hosea as well. God called Hosea to this very difficult life. But He meant it ultimately to bless Hosea. Now, whatever Hosea's lifestyle was, once he was back with Gomer, we don't know. But God will reward him in heaven for his participation in what God was up to. That pain will be reproduced, as it were, oppositely as glory and honor. Eventually. You don't necessarily see that in the short, short term. But God does love me. And we need to remember that as God's calling us into challenging situations as well. One of the things we want to ask ourselves before we move on is this. Am I faithful when God requires something of me I don't want to do? And guys, let's just give ourselves some grace and let's say that God requires something difficult and our first response is, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't even want to hear that. Let's just, let's just say that's what we're going to do. So what's our second? What's, as we think about it, as we pray, as we get over the initial shock, are we then able to say, I'm embracing God's plan with confidence, even if it's difficult and challenging, because I know ultimately He will use it in a way that blesses me. I may not be able to see now. And it will also bring glory to Him, which is our ultimate cause and reason for being is to glorify God. So we need to wrap our minds around, especially in the West, we've got lots of material prosperity, but what we don't have is this kind of Hosea-like faithfulness. God, you're God, I'm not. I'm the clay, you're the potter. What do you want me to do? What does that require? And if it's painful, I'll get beyond that so that I can remain faithful to you. So that's key for Hosea. I want to mention briefly uh, chapter 2. I'll read, I'll read this briefly just because I want you to have a flavor. But I want to transition from this first point to the second to say, Hosea married Gomer. They've got those three kids, and that's sort of where we left it. But listen to chapter 2. This is from verses 8 through 13. So God is speaking primarily now through Hosea to Israel, to God's wife, Israel. Elements of this, of course, are also true of Gomer towards Hosea. So it's sort of an apt description in both directions. God says of Israel inferred in Gomer and Hosea, she did not know, he says, that it was I who gave her grain, wine, oil, lavished on her silver gold, which they used for Baal. So Hosea says to Gomer, I've given you everything and you've taken it and you've spent it on other men. And God says to Israel, the stuff, all the stuff you're giving as sacrifice to Baal is what I gave you. It's like a woman who's been given an engagement ring. She hawks it and gives the money to another man to buy whatever. Israel's taking all the things God gave them and they're sacrificing it to the Baals. Remember, the Baals came up under Ahab and Jezebel introduced into Israel. It remained their Achilles heel until they were taken captive by the Assyrians. 
God says, so I'm going to take back my grain and my wine. I'm taking away my wool and my flax. I'm going to uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one shall rescue her out of my hand. This is warfare and captivity. I'll put an end to her mirth, her Sabbaths, the feasts. I'll lay waste her vines and fig trees. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them, adorned herself with her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. So after our little segment in chapter 1, this is what follows. So Gomer and Israel both are absolutely faithless to their respective husbands. Hosea's wife ends up destitute, estranged from her husband. She ends up human traffic, as we'll see. And Israel will lose their safety and they're going to go into poverty and captivity. Now eventually, and the Scripture says in Hosea, in the latter days, God says He will be reconciled to Israel. And I don't think this reconciliation has occurred yet. You do see Israel and Judah restored to the land after the Babylonian captivity, but what you've never seen is Israel as a people restored fully to Yahweh their God, and I think that's still to come. So Hosea is going to be reconciled to Gomer, and God ultimately will be reconciled to Israel. Now, the other thing... That's chapter 2, sorry, here we are. Go to Hosea 3, verses 1 through 3. So... Gomer, their marriage has already fallen apart. She's gone. And the story doesn't tell us how, but she either owes a debt she can't pay or someone else now owns her as a slave. They're still married. But she, she is not free. She is not freely making her own decisions anymore. Just as Israel will be taken captive, Gomer is no longer a free person. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And the raisin cakes were part of the worship of Baal. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now, God not only requires Hosea to marry faithless Gomer, but he then requires Hosea to take her back. And not only to take her back, guys, but to buy her back. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation and redemption. So Hosea's got to go to the slave market and between the silver and the product, it's probably the typical price of a slave. It's probably the 30 shekels that was the standard price for a slave. She's willingly gone to other men. She somehow either incurred debt or been bought by someone else and she can't redeem herself. And we want to, in whatever graphic ways are helpful and not otherwise, you know, in the slave market in those days, typically the slaves were naked. So the picture we want to see in our mind is Hosea goes to the public square and his wife is naked in front of everybody else up there. So her shame is on display. And his heartache's on display because that's his wife. So in the public view, 
shame full on display, not a stitch of clothing on, he's got to go buy his wife back. He's got to go redeem his wife. Humiliation, embarrassment, I mean, just pain, period. But add to that humiliation, it's all public, there's nothing hidden, and I've got to go into that setting. And I've got to, the fact that it's not just all silver probably means he's got to scrape this together. It's costly to him. He's got to find a way to go redeem her from the slave market. And how like God. Now, if you think of this, and I should say this now, so Hosea is the guy we're looking at. Because Hosea is the one that's displaying God's kind of faithfulness. So we're taking our cues from Hosea as far as faithfulness. But guys, in the big picture, there's no mistake, right? With this book and these relationships as the analogy or the lens, you and I are not Hosea. We're Gomer. We're not the Redeemer. We're the redeemed. We're not the one who is noble. We're the ones that are shameful. We want to make sure, applicationally, we want to aspire to be like Hosea, faithful. But we understand we start with Gomer. That's the deal. So, Hosea is an image of the Lord Himself and Jesus specifically in His redemptive work, not just for Israel, but for us as well. And guys, back in the day, the thing was, Israel treated the Baals like God. They prayed to Him. They had sexual immorality at the Baal sites because they hoped that that would provoke Baal and Ashtoreth to give fertility to wives and livestock and fields. This was total corruption. Total corruption. And this is a picture of you and me. Unfaithfulness was never limited to Israel alone. And it wasn't true back in the day and it's not now. Now consider this. So, Hosea is the representative of God in this relationship. And so if we extrapolate and we go back, the setting is almost the same. So God sends Jesus to the earth. And what does our redemption look like? So we're like Gomer. We're naked. We have nothing but shame. We have no stitch of clothing. We don't have a penny. We don't have a penny, a pocket to put a penny in. You, you get it. That if we're to be redeemed, we can't do it. And now Jesus is the one naked. You know in all the crucifixions, we put a little cloth around Him. The Romans didn't put little cloths around these people. They were naked on the cross. Because it was meant to be as shameful and public and humiliating as possible. Just like the slave market. So Jesus takes our place in the public square on the hill right outside the walls of Jerusalem to redeem us. It was costly. It was expensive. It was humiliating. It was shameful. He took our shame on Himself to buy us back. God's kind of faithful love for us. So, big picture, we're Gomer, we're not Hosea. Though we aspire to that kind of faithfulness. What does God require of us? That's what we want to do. That's what Hosea did and that's what Christ, of course, has done for us. If we ever have, or if you interact with others who tell you that there's something that you must do to either get saved or stay saved other than trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a great picture to come back to. Because if you say Gomer represents all of us, what can Gomer bring to her redemption? Nothing. She cannot redeem herself. 
she doesn't bring anything except her need to this deal. So when we talk to others about the Gospel, we want to make sure that we say their salvation, our salvation, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ has done what we could not do. Ever. No way, no how. It shouldn't even enter the equation. So as followers of Christ, so starting as Gomer, God willing, ending up like Hosea, as followers of Christ, guys, you and I are called, we are commanded to forgive. Forgiveness as a way of life. On your study sheet, look, you've got uh, Matthew uh, 6, Luke 11, Matthew 18, and Luke 17. Forgiveness for you and I is not optional. When the disciples say to the Lord, hey, would you teach us to pray? What does He say? Part of. So it's a model prayer. We don't have to recite this verbatim as it was. Forgive us as we forgive others. In the same way that we forgive others, Lord, would you forgive us? You get to the parable in Matthew 18. One guy's forgiven a a debt he could never have repaid. But he holds the minor debt of a fellow against him. And God says, not not happening. He says, if you don't forgive others, I don't forgive you. That's not about personal restoration or reconciliation. That's about fellowship with the Lord. It's not a I'm lost or I'm saved issue. It's that your father will not be happy with you and things will not be good. And in Luke's Gospel, when the disciples are generous and large-minded, they say, hey, Lord, should we forgive seven times? Because that's a lot. Seven's a perfect number. And he says, nope, 70 times seven. Anytime someone comes and asks you for forgiveness, he says you forgive them. That's the deal. This is not an option. Christians are meant to give others the forgiveness we have been given freely by Christ. And this is something aside. Forgiveness for us, guys, remember, is a decision. It's not an emotion. So I might say to the Lord, I forgive so-and-so for whatever. And I think about it the next day, and I'm ticked again, or I'm hurt again, and I say, Lord, in Jesus' name, I forgive so-and-so for X, Y, Z, whatever it is. It's the decision of the will. It's not an emotion. But we're called to forgive. Sometimes we can also entertain reconciliation, though this is much more of an iffy thing. You know, a marriage that has ended. You might have a friendship where friends have walked away. And <laughs> I, I had a, a friend, a brother in the faith that I thought we were great friends with and found out somehow he'd been offended and he wouldn't return my calls. He wouldn't have lunch with me. He wouldn't sit down so that I could just ask him what, what went wrong. We don't control those things. But Romans 12 says, as far as it depends on us, be at peace. So sometimes... We're able, we're always called, not only to forgive, but sometimes we can also be agents of reconciliation as Hosea was reconciled to Gomer and as God is ultimately reconciled to us. So listen to this. This is from Hosea 2, 14-23. And I'm hop-skipping and jumping through this as we wind down. If you just look at the pain of that relationship, it's horrendous, isn't it? Hosea and Gomer, Israel and the Lord. But this is where this ends. And chapter 2 is sort of a microcosm of the whole book. God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is God to Israel. He says, I'm going to speak to her heart and I'm going to bring her out to this place where it's just the two of us. All the, all the past, all the hurts, all the history is gone and behind. He says, in that day, you will call me 
my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Remember, Baal means Lord, but the Hebrew is uh, uh, more touching. And the Hebrew, the husband is Ish and the wife is Ishi. And, and uh, you will call me Ish. Ishi will call him Ish. And you won't call me my Baal, my Lord. It'll be personal. I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth. They shall be remembered by name no more. This is something I pray occasionally. Lord, would you take away the memory of my sin? You know what I mean? Because God says you won't even remember the names of those gods you were bowing down to. It'll be history. It'll be washed away. It won't even be a thought in your mind. You know, if I've got habits of the mind or the heart, it's like, Lord, would you take those things out of my mind? Would you help me just forget they ever existed? He says, I'll abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. I'm going to make you lie down in safety. Think Psalm 23. I'm going to lead you to this great place. It'll be great. You'll be safe. It'll be us together. He says, and I'll have mercy on no mercy. And I'll say to not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you're my God. It's Ishi. You're you're Ish. You're it. You know, you're the one. You're my husband. On that second part, what insults do we need to forgive someone else for? Guys, the other thing about forgiveness is this. We let ourselves off the hook. When you embrace bitterness or unforgiveness towards other people, you don't hurt them, you hurt yourself. If you want freedom in life, one of the first things we need to do is forgive anyone that we've been holding on to some bitterness against. Because it just it's like cancer, it consumes us. So when we forgive others, it's not just that we're letting them off the hook. They're on God's hook. We're freeing ourselves from them. You know, because whatever the heart attaches to, that's what guides us. And if you focus on the wrongs other people have done to you, you become like the person that wronged you. It's why kids who are raised in abusive homes become abusers. Because that's all they know. That's what they focus on. So we want to make sure that we forgive others because we are liberated to continue to know God and enjoy Him. So we need to think about this. And then what betrayal does God call us to cover at our cost? Sometimes forgiveness is costly and perhaps see restoration in. Again, this is where wisdom is needed and prayer, maybe even counsel. Situations where reconciliation is possible or situations where it's simply not. But that's what we want to aim for. So with that, why don't you stand with me? The worship team is going to come up. And I wanted to read this. This is... a. This is a lovely passage out of Hosea 6. And it's, it's Israel's response to God's call. And, and it's this hopefulness of this is where things end up. So read this with me if you would. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth.